tarry the presence of um, this week of so many visitors from abroad could bid fair to confound us. It would be presumption to assume that the hero of this evening's lecture, with a career spanning the Atlantic, had alone tempted so many now to cross the, the water. It could be, of course, that the globalization pervading the world's commerce and finance has finally smitten the realm of antiquarian book education. But really, there need be no mystery. Rare book school, starting up two decades ago, a vox clamantis in deserto, a voice crying in the wilderness, the lone missionary has proselytized and persisted to become, in the words of today's idiom, the place where it's at. And for this, a determined faculty is repeatedly touched by the quality, the dedication, and the loyalty of the students. And now to begin. Chances are you're an audience preponderantly of bibliophiles, folks who love books, and if you're anything like me, you have particular affections for particular books. Well, I have always loved all along this 1929 Blumenbuch, a showing of some 230 wildflowers drawn by Rudolf Koch, that typographic original of Germany's arts and crafts movement. The images were derived from woodblocks cut after Koch's drawing by his pupil, Fritz Kregel, who later became Koch's indispensable right hand and colleague. The images in that edition were gently tinged with watercolors applied using pochoir stencils. Now, I would suspect you'd agree with me that the great, memorable illustrated books of our heritage lift the viewer to a plateau of distilled reality to where we see not a picture of the thing, certainly not the thing itself, but rather its essence. Watch out. Don't tread on that fragile little snowdrop. You pause in the outskirts of the Schwarzwald. Is that a distant cowbell greeting your ear? See what magic, exquisite art can work upon you. It sets your imagination, your fantasy, afire. We'll leave through that Blumenbuch, in which the flowers and grasses in its three volumes are arranged in the order of their appearance, early spring on through fall blooming. And we can enjoy the varieties with which the seasonable months endow the meadows and the woodlands wild. Here the crocus, early harbinger of spring, piercing the decaying leaves of yesteryear, is followed by the sprightly fern rising from beneath umbrageous trees at the boggy edge of the stream. Grasses emerge on the hillside. They wave and bow across each other as bidden by the gentle spring wind. And twining its tendrils around neighboring stronger stalks is the convolvulus, the wild morning glory, reminding us how transient are the flowers, the seasons, and the years. If you look very carefully, you might see how minimal but essential are the pochoir brushed traces of pale pink in the throats of those delicate flowers. Then, bidden by the ever-warming sun, appears the Turk's cap lily, labeled here in German more accurate in its description, the Turk's turban, and then the wild columbine. And as the days grow constantly longer and warmer, so do the floral hues grow richer and more assertive. This is loose strife, running rather rampant now here in America, roots reaching underground and choking out the competition. And the chicory we see so often 
close along the roadside, as if it thrives more on breathing automobile omissions and digging its roots into asphalt than if it were growing in the fresh, remote air of a distant meadow. And the ever-welcome Marguerite, the field daisy, symbol of high summer dancing among those other blossoms, of motley hue among the grasses which grow to seed as the year begins to wind down with ever more flowers for the bees. The time is out of joint. Indeed, the time is out of joint. Today, my book budget would allow me to buy this 1929 Blumenbuch from an antiquarian bookseller, but only at the advertised price in that year back then when I first handled a copy a half century ago. But to my rescue has come Das Kleine Blumenbuch, the little book of wild flowers, a miniaturized selection of roughly 60 of those same images reproduced by Offset in full color and issued by the Inselverlag of Leipzig in 1933. I found it at an antiquarian book fair. Not so many years back, cheek by jowl among kindred books, and I was reminded of that whole genre of little illustrated books which glancingly touch and then bore in on one particular detail in the history of the world. In fact, that same day, I found that little book of wildflowers. I couldn't resist buying this Inselfellag mini-book on the Sachsenspiegel, that 13th century illustrated manuscript codifying custom into law. In the lower panel, we're shown that each year the sharecropper must give the landowner a cart filled with as much hay as can be drawn with effort by two yearling oxen. And another little book caught my eye, Flags and Standards, the 1936 publication of the Bibliographic Institute of Leipzig. It's full of these exuberant heraldic symbols, waving in the wind, reminding its readers of those glorious days of yore, of pride, of dominion, of empire. But it was only after I got this one home and started leafing carefully through it, trying to decipher the accompanying text from a rusty recollection of high school German, it was only then that I tripped upon this graphic landmine. All that nostalgia, all that fatuous dreaming of the past these little books had induced was gone in a trice. Here were the harsh blood red and the twisted arms of that black gestalt spinning destruction like knives on the wheels of a Persian war chariot. Here was the weapon which had stilled the hands of so many, which had driven these gifted hands of Fritz Cradle over the ocean and had driven Bertolt Volpe, Cradle's colleague in Rudolf Koch's workshop, across the channel. What a bind we are in, decrying that diaspora, while all at the same time we, in the English-speaking world, have become its chief beneficiaries, its residuary legatees. Well, enough musing. What about Fritz Cradle, the book artist, the centenary of whose birth we have just completed the year of celebrating? He was the perfect example of the adage, as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. If your father were an officer in the Hessian field artillery, you'd sure be impressed when he donned his major's dress uniform. And well might you ask, as did little Fritz, Daddy, why don't you wear that suit all the time? Further, of course, as you grew obsessed with sketching, you'd be famed in later life 
for book after colorful book showing uniforms of the various ranks of the various armies of the world. We're looking at a visual history of American military uniforms published in 1950s in Chicago by Henry Regnery. First, we see these pre-Civil War scouts and here some very out-of-condition new recruits to the ranks of the land militia being rather vainly coached into shape by a seasoned professional soldier. Now, we need only to peek into the little book in which 15-year-old Fritz did his sketching to realize how naturally endowed this young person really was. The little incidental objects of everyday life are transfixed on paper. See young Fritz Cradle's signature in the lower right, a monogrammed FK with the date 1915. And the First World War was going full blast and at a dreadful stalemate. Hence this hopeless confrontation. On another page, this concentration of heads. Some got out in wartime garb, and the hand, even more hands. Anyone will tell you, if you can draw hands, you could be an artist. If not, forget it. Although the sketchbook reveals a boy engrossed in the showy trappings of military life, he was not at all blind to war's horrors. A political scientist lecturing at Yale early in World War II claimed that the military became so attractive to so many young Germans in the 1930s because they had been the very children whose parents, repelled by the horrible memories of the First War, had forbidden them to play with toy soldiers. Well, the roots of Fritz Cradle's more balanced views are several. The freedom he felt to play with his toy soldiers. After all, his was a military family. And, of course, there was his natural sensibility. But above all, he had joined the German army at 18 in the waning months of the First War and had come to know how unglorious war really was and to feel revulsion at its horrors. Yet he was not about to eschew what he had known so well, the uniforms, the parades, the toys that had so amused him as a child. Later in life, he never stopped. He cut these little shapes out of board and painted them. Well, the first war was over. He was out of the army and back home. Here's his house in his sketchbook. So the family began to rack its brains to help young Fritz, this boy who was always sketching, to help him get a foothold in life, to carve out a career. Certainly, if you were a staunch military figure, you'd not be very likely to encourage your boy to become an artist. What sort of profession is that? A pharmacist apprentice? Well, that might do. And though the tedium of the pharmacy's bookkeeping bored young Fritz, he lasted long enough to absorb the textures and outlines of the medicinal herbs, and that nurtured the naturalist in him. Who's to say those Blumenbuch images are not the stronger and more precise for the months spent among those herbs hung up to dry in that apothecary's shop. And then there was the year on a cousin's farm, where Fritz was expected to learn agricultural management. Now there's a sensible, healthy life. But the upshot of that was only more sketching, this time of livestock, prefiguring the drawings and woodcuts of the spirited beasts and fowl which pepper his books. Study the eyes on that opportunistic cat, the, the precise placement of the pupils tells you exactly what she's thinking. 
and the cow here, as believable as she is. Cradle seems to have endowed her with more depth, understanding, and wry wit than God, the good Lord, ever did any other bovine. And still another animal. This time the image was cut on wood. You know, there's a curious affinity of the naturalist for wood. In the early days of printing, of course, cutting relief images with a knife on a wooden plank's side grain was the only way to translate a drawing into print. With the result that some of us, even today, when we look upon a fragile little plant, see in our mind's eye, superimposed upon that delicate little green and flowered thing, the matrix of a 16th century woodcut, with all the definitive vigor, the stripped-down, exaggerated essentials, which the very limitations of the side-grain woodcutting act had mandated. It was a naturalist, too, working in wood, who made that great leap forward in the 18th century, desperate to render relief images which could express the tones and textures he achieved in the copperplate engraving trade to which he was uh, trained. And this is an example of his copperplate work. That original Thomas Buick, who as a boy had wandered through the Northumbrian meadows sketching birds, Thomas Buick tried cutting his images on the seemingly grainless end grain of boxwood blocks. And lo, these carefully textured pieces could then be printed economically in the same forms along with the type pages. Well, that affinity, that right of wood to represent nature, persists in Cradle's work and we thank him for it. Let's see. We left young Cradle sketching cattle, plow horses, and barnyard fowl on that cousin's farm. Yet he remained averse to taking over an agribusiness. Okay, my boy, you win. And so it was that in late, the late teens of the century, the major staked his son to enrollment in the Kunstgewerbeschule, the School of Applied Arts in Offenbach, near Frankfurt on the Main. And the young man's rightful career got underway because it was in that art school that Rudolf Koch taught graphics. But that's not all. Koch was also typographic design director for the Klingspor type foundry. We see him here in the demanding and tedious throes of cutting and filing the steel punch, that prototype, for one particular letter in a font of type. And remember, in the end, that letter must appear to be at one with all the other letters of that size in that alphabet. It's a daunting job. Well, the type foundry for which Koch worked had the good sense to allot space for and to fund the Werkstatt, that workshop activity closest to Koch's heart. It was here that the tiny group of craftspeople, handpicked by Koch from among his students in the art school, it was here that these craftspeople took commissions for manuscript books, for carved and woven liturgical artifacts. Koch spotted Fritz in the school, brought him into the Werkstatt, and determined he'd be the one to translate their drawings into woodcuts. And here they are, Fritz Cradle standing just behind Koch, the seated master. But what did Koch see in that young man? Tenacity? It was certainly there, because only tenacity could have advanced the skills of the block cutter of their first project, the 1926 Book of Signs. Here's its cover. It was not challenging work to cut page after page of historic conventional symbols. 
Here, of course, the zodiac signs, and in the tradition of the Middle Ages, we see the icons of the emperors made by arranging the letters in their names into a pattern. Some letters sharing common strokes, Charlemagne's Carolus here, for example. But after this rather undemanding piece of work, only tenacity could have brought Fritz Cradle to the point where he was able to imply the delicate details of this dandelion's seed pup by the time the Blumenbuch was ready for press at the end of the decade. In fact, it was that graphic polymath, Victor Hammer, who, when Cradle showed him his early attempts at cutting for the Blumenbuch, it was Hammer who asked, and what will you do when you're faced with cutting the tiny filaments of the dandelion gone to seed? Well, replied the young man, I shall need the patience of a Japanese artist, to which Hammer gave the imperious command, Then have it! Indeed, it was tenacity, cutting and discarding, and cutting again and again, which not only brought Cradle's images to a state of perfection, but which honed his eye, his hand, and his perceptive imagination. As he clambered into what we must imagine was his fantasy time machine from which he awoke as the Formenschneider, the block cutter, in some late 1400s, early 1500s European publishing atelier. Cradle's contemporary, the American Thomas Maitland Cleland, master of those high-style auto-ads in the 1920s, and who, like Cradle, drew so many illustrations for the Limited Editions Club. Cleland was famously sparing in his compliments, so it was noteworthy to hear him confess that, quote, Fritz Cradle, with his knife and wood, could capture the character of a Florentine incunable block in ways I could not possibly achieve with my pen, unquote. We've been looking at images from Boccaccio's Nymphs of Fiesole. They seem to be impressions from blocks which might have been lurking for 400 years in the attic storeroom of Aldous's Venetian printing establishment long after the book had been completed. But no, it's the 1952 English translation of the original Aldous text printed by Giovanni Marderstein in the, his Officina Bodoni printing works in Verona for which he bade for table make faithful recuttings. Sure, he could have ordered photo engravings to be made from the old book, but there would have been a subtle blunting of the corners. He'd have lost the vigorous immediacy of the knife-cut line into fresh wood. Here Marderstein's own words in the postscript. In the spring of 1938, Fritz Cradle, that eminent master of the old wood-cut technique, visited me in Verona. Like the woodcarvers in the days of Incunabula, he uses a small knife, and with admirable accuracy and speed, he engraves the most delicate lines and drawings on blocks of pear wood. As he shares my enthusiasm for early woodcuts, I asked him if he would care to recut the 16 illustrations found only in the 1568 edition of Boccaccio's Nymphs of the Aesley. The originals were then transferred photographically to the wood blocks, and he began to cut them faithfully." Unquote. We can see Cradle's gift for replicating the line and spirit of that age again and again. Here in a 1952 Faustus play for the Caxton Club of Chicago, these serve as factotum figures. Faust, the alchemist at the right, transformed as a young dandy center, and his co-conspirator, the devil, appearing and reappearing as they enter and re-enter the action of the drama. Now, Joseph Graves of Lexington, Kentucky, was a man of independent means, lucky enough to have Fritz Cradle join him at his Gravesend Press, his avocation, 
for several weeks each summer during the 1950s. There was no more intense book arts center in the 50s than Lexington, Kentucky. Victor Hammer was there, and he acted as a magnet upon Fritz Cradle. Well, Joe Graves and Fritz Cradle worked up all sorts of things together, this Aucassin and Nicolette among them. But Joe had a gift. Some would call it a serious, if not diabolical, character flaw, a penchant for the practical joke. It is with trepidation that someone of my generation dare to relate this one in mixed company. But there was, according to the story which reached us in Chicago, there was in Joe's time in Lexington what was termed a sporting house. And when the proprietress died after many years of managing her establishment of earthly pleasures, on the day following the notice of her death, there appeared in the incoming mailbox of every respectable home in Lexington, there appeared a black-bordered envelope addressed to the gentleman of the house and enclosing a black-bordered card with the printed inscription, The Family of Bell So-and-So, appreciate deeply your kind expressions of sympathy. <laughs> well, you can imagine the mischief that bombshell brought to the domestic tranquility of Lexington's first families. Joe Graves' son tells me that his father felt obliged to leave town for several days to, to the furor subsided. But they all soon realized it was Joe who, who else in that posh circle was in possession of a hobby press. Oh, the power of the press. It was Joe Graves in action. Well, the event most retold in the book world occurred when in a European antiquarian bookshop, Joe found a batch of discarded blank 16th century fly leaves salvaged from rebound old books. When he arrived home, Joe could not resist having Fritz cut an incunable-style block, which he then printed onto those sheets, sending out one with a covering letter to each of the most distinguished names in the bibliographic world. I found this in a Munich antiquariat, or I spotted this in that tiny shop across from the Uffizi. Have you any idea what it is? Well, you can imagine Joe's delight in showing round that sheaf of answers from top scholars and curators, each with a different assertion as to what it was, and all, mind you, dead wrong. The only one not taken in by the hoax was Carl Koop of the New York Public Library, who returned his and across it had scribbled, it's a fake. I still to find those embarrassing responses. Could the whole story have been apocryphal, floated by Joe in another one of his jokes? I surely hope not, but perhaps we will never really know. Mind you, there was more for Fritz Cradle in Lexington than his enthusiastic amateur printing friend Joe Graves, doubling as a prankster. That Lexington is the thoroughbred capital of the world appealed mightily to Fritz. Horses, after all, were at the confluence of two important streams in his history, the military and the farm. No wonder, then, that we see him in the early 1950s, uh -oh. no wonder that we see him then in the early 1950s seizing the chance to don racing silks mount a retired racehorse, and have his picture snapped as if he were in the winner's circle following a victory. But it was little known to him that at that very season in Louisville, the next town over, your speaker in his racing silks <laughs> was heading postward on storm hour about to win the Oxmoor Memorial steeplechase. You can imagine what a happy discovery of consanguinity it was for me when this daughter, Judith Cradle Brown, sent me that photo of her dad on that horse. Well, in his gift for creating an incunable style woodblock, Fritz Cradle had no peer. 
So it's all the more remarkable that with one great talent under his belt, he should have developed another. But that, of course, he had. It was the light, airy, sprightly, witty line we see in this drawing of Puss in Boots, and particularly in the 1931 Grimm's Fairy Tales, done for the Limited Editions Club during its start-up year. These are Cradle's woodcut renderings of his own sketches. Little Red Riding Hood negotiating her way past that rapacious wolf with her basket of treats, including a bottle of claret for Grandma. But the wolf was finally subdued by that red-bearded member of the local constabulary while Grandma and the little girl looked gratefully on. Here in the same Grimm's fairy tales, Hansel hitches a lift on the back of an accommodating duck while a lone soldier meanders nonchalantly down the deserted turnpike. And then there's this solicitous royal personage in amphibious disguise. The book appears in Rudolf Koch's Antiquotype, which has recently enjoyed a faddish revival in American high-style advertisements under the name of Eve. But notice how totally compatible are the lines of type and the drawing the lines of the drawings, as if they had been conceived and executed by the same hand, as if they were meant to have a relationship. I would like to think that some of you know this little book, Type and Illustration by John Lewis. It touches on the potential synergy which is generated when the textures of type mass and the textures of the illustration are sensitively selected, each with the other in mind. So little attention is paid to this issue, either when books are designed or when their illustrations are drafted and selected or when illustrated books are evaluatively criticized. The relationship can be one of sympathy, as in the Grimm or in this spread of the crabs, or it can be of lively contrast, one foiled against the other, as in this. But attention should be paid to these decisions. And we see no more convincing exemplars of success in this way than when Koch and Cradle collaborate, not only on the Grimm, but in the Blumenbuch, where the texture of the little labels set in Koch's yes and shrift down there at the lower right. That humanistic black letter type resonate with the drawings, or again, in the workshop's ambitious, never-to-be-mass-produced proposal for the grand map of Germany, a fragment of which we see here. The proposal itself was a three-by-five-foot baquette of this remarkable map, which, if you should see it, would lead you to wonder, is this a bit from a 1490s Nuremberg Chronicle? No, no, it's early 1930s. But see how the mountains and the hills and the riverbanks and the appealing little architectural icons are all of a piece with the type in the place names. And later in life, in a rather nostalgic mood, Cradle himself cut another such map, we see here the six pieced together blocks which made it up. It's the map of the walled town of Michelstadt, his home, carved with characteristic force with a romantic reference to a time long gone by and clearly with love. Michelstadt today boasts a Fritz Cradle Museum and last year, like the Grolier Club and Yale's Arts of the Book Room, celebrated his centenary with a gala exhibition. Well, here they are, close-knit members of the Werkstatt who worked up that map of Germany proposal in happier times. That's Fritz Cradle in the dark suit next to Bertolt Wolpe. 
But Germany did not remain the place to be for long. Koch, always frail, had died within a year of the National Socialist takeover, and the cradles moved to Vienna only to be engulfed again by that dread political flood washing over Europe. But enter, fortunately, the American Melbert Carey, a lawyer whose wife, Mary Flagler, had inherited the land on which stand that, me that megalopolis of luxury hotels, Miami Beach. So he was able to indulge an avocation, operating his private press of the woolly whale, and even more significance, setting up Continental Type, a company importing the most tasteful faces from the European foundries, Koch's Klingspor types among them. Naturally, he had got to know Fritz Cradle on his occasional visits to the King's Klingspor foundry and the Crafts Workshop in Offenbach. And he took the lead in seeing that the cradles left Austria and came over here to America in 1938. The family was scarcely off the boat and unpacked before Carrie staged a reception. The typophiles welcome Fritz Cradle at a dinner. Cost $2 per person, including tip, and the food will be good, unquote. And what a roster signed this keepsake. The Carries themselves, of course, and the American book illustrator Warren Chappell, who had spent the year of 1930 as Cradle's colleague in Koch's Offenbach workshop. And we see here Yale's printer Carl Rollins, and elsewhere in the book were the signatures of Harold Hugo of the Meriden Gavure Company, prolific type designer Fred Gowdy, and Frank Altshul, whose avocation was the Overbrook Press. In addition to these page, pages of signatures, Many well-wishers had submitted four- and eight-page fascicles to be bound into the book. George Salter, the calligrapher and jacket designer of many distinguished New York books of the 1940s and 50s, himself an emigre from Europe, depicts a fanciful Santa Maria-like little ship purporting to have brought the cradles to America. And on its sail, replacing the Spanish cross, is Cradle's familiar monogram inherited from his days in Koch's workshop. There's... Dan's cradle, seemingly a little, a little worse for wear, before the proverbial open door. Is that Emma Lazarus herself, the Statue of Liberty and Mufti, exclaiming, Dear Fritz Cradle, life begins in the USA. Welcome to New York. The figure is most likely Salter himself, who, as we will come to see, was Cradle's collaborator years later in the 1960s on what many feel was Cradle's greatest artistic triumph. From his early years in from his years in America, well, Fritz Cradle's first artistic act on American soil was to satisfy Melbert Carey's yearning for illustrations to the Woolly Whale's Christmas Schnitzelbank book, that traditional German song game akin to Old MacDonald or the Twelve Days of Christmas, where objects pile up to tax our memories as the verses progress. Ist das nicht Amerika? Ja, das ist Amerika. And while the little kid forages. For more pictures, we have this schoolmaster droning on Istas nicht, a tree of life, a Christmas tree. While the next image bears memories of old St. Stephen's Cathedral back home, Istas nicht der Stephansdom. Here we see Cradle's beautifully finished poster image of yet another great cathedral, that of Strasbourg, which exudes the same Gothic force and dignity which pervades so much of the work of his work in this genre. Well, good old Schnitzelbank, good old Joe Graves. It seemed that it, having fun latched onto Fritz Cradle wherever he went. 
we seem to have consumed a great deal of time just getting Fritz Cradle to America, although that's where he'll have spent most of his professional life. But no matter. We've seen how he developed his endowments. The sketchbook gave us hints, and we've not yet shown how well-rounded an artist he really was, rendering superbly anything he wished in any style he chose. Look how rich and finished were his images for Inselferlag's little book of birds and nests, done while still in Europe, wrought within the stylistic confines of traditional naturalistic illustration. But here he was in America, with the rent to be paid, from commissions doled out by publisher clients whose expectations were not those of the craft's devoted workshop patrons back in Offenbach. New York favored the light, airy, quick-sketched line with perhaps a hard Art Deco edge. We can see this in Warren Chappell's contribution to the keepsake which the typophiles all signed at the welcoming dinner. You'll remember that Chappell had spent the year of 1930 as Cradle's colleague in Koch's Werkstatt, and he took Cradle round to meet potential publisher clients to help him get a foothold in New York. But here, in Chappell's own work, we feel the illustrated line under the pressure of his client's taste, grown devil-may-care and undisciplined. Oops, I, I'm uh, meaning to go back there. Well, you remember that uh, drawing of Chapels. Um, when we think to contrast it with Cradle's minimalist, no more than necessary renderings for the Brothers Grimm fairy tales. And Chapel's Lydian type, seen here, is almost a parody of Koch's hand-hewn black letters. They have been forced into a sterile mold by the 1930s demands of American advertising. So it's all the more remarkable that Cradle was able to meet publishers' expectations for a free, open approach to illustration, as in this little charmer, a juvenile book jacket, with a genius which gave so much grace, life, and wit to his characters. These figures from Anderson's fairy tales have taken on a life of their own and harken back to the forthright economy of the earlier Grimm. Two, it should be remembered how thoroughly versatile Cradle was able to be when the situation or the client called for it. An example, when the Limited Editions Club issued such books as Anthony Trollope's Barchester Towers, the publisher strove for the, an optimal mix of the loose style of the current day, the one the readers are used to, with some reference to the past to 19th century steel plate engraving, but of course pen drawn here and livened with color. <clears throat> but something like this Grosset and Dumlap version of Aesop's Fables offered more room for Cradle's playfulness, for dramatic expressions on the faces of the animals, and again imbuing them with a rich, almost human intelligence and sensitivity without divesting them of the characteristics of their own particular species, the sort of thing Beatrix Potter did so incomparably and at which Disney and so many others have failed utterly. But we must surmise <clears throat> that during his time in America, Cradle was never so content as when he was offered the opportunity to render illustrations as woodcuts in the old, incunable style. Late last year, I went to play Christmas carols on this Time Life LP record I had it around for years, and I just happened to squint at the credits on the back cover, and there it was, Woodcuts by Fritz Cradle. 
Happily, there was a never-ending demand for these wonderful simulations, and no one came close to Fritz Cradle in the ability to render them. Here, from tales of a Jewish Aesop, many are the lovers of the rich man when his splendor shines. But when he is humbled and his power curtailed, they change. The lion, the king of the beasts, here grown old and frail, is taunted and mocked. And another... This Boccaccio for the Limited Editions Club, with its spin-off of Heritage Editions, for which publisher Cradle illustrated a total of 17 texts. <clears throat> Another great, great break came in 1966, when a German publisher contacted him and asked him to cut wood illustrations for this fine edition of Tristan and Zolden, and he was again doing what he loved. In any tale... In any tale where there's a dragon just waiting to be slain, you have a ready-made setup for a smashing illustration. Now, I want to anticipate a question. Some of you printing aficionados will pose if you should examine one of Cradle's wood blocks. This is one. And you'll realize none bears the telltale evidence of having actually been used on a printing press with type in the course of the producing the printed book pages. Sure, ink has been rolled across the raised surface, leaving the image black, but all this was done in the course of successively proofing and modifying the block until the artist had got it exactly to the stage he wished. But if that block had been used in the actual production of the printed pages, then it would, at the completion of the print run, have been washed all over with ink solvent, which would have blackened the recessed areas just as the printing surfaces are blackened here. So what was actually used to produce the book? An exact replica, an electrotype. The woodblock was imprinted deep into a wax sheet, which was then placed in an electrolytic bath until a copper shell of adequate thickness could be peeled off, backed by a lead support, and mounted on a block to become the height of type, ready to print in position with the type. If they hadn't done this and had opted instead to print directly from Fritz Cradle's block, clearing and trimming the surrounding areas, and if some forgetful pressman had left a steel wrench on the assemblage of type and wood blocks during the production run, the block might be smashed irreparably, and no one would be about to phone up the artist at some godly hour to beg, please, Mr. Cradle, would you fashion a quick replacement while we hold the press open? This clipping from a Times Literary Supplement of the early 1970s records the discovery of a block of wood on which Albrecht Dürer had sketched an illustration which had somehow never been cut. But Fritz Cradle transferred the drawing to a fresh block, cut it in true Dürer style, and centuries after Germany's great graphic genius was long gone, Fritz Cradle brought the man's unrealized vision to life. Earlier, I promised to show you what was certainly Cradle's most stunning, most personal accomplishment to be crafted during his three and a half decades here in America, the mid-1960s collaboration with George Salter, a collaboration in the sense that the texts were written out in Salter's singular calligraphy, so perfect in har perfectly in harmony with Cradle's selected quotations and the illustrations he fashioned to go with them. The book is Am Wegenskrant, Along the Pathway's Edge. It celebrates nature as the cradles founded on their daily walks through the city park near their apartment home in New York's Washington Heights neighborhood. That these delicate evidences of vibrant green life could be found in the midst of a teeming city pays homage to nature and to her tenacity. 
but that they should elicit from Fritz Pedel such recollections of German literature to speak for his images, those romantic interpretations of what he found along the way, credits alone his genius. Here Goethe speaks. Willst du dich am Ganzen erquicken, so musst du das Ganze im Kleinsten erblicken. Before you can really take in the woodland in all its glory, you must first perceive each tiny plant within it. Again, the dandelion. We're really blessed that such striking forms surround us in such abundance. Next time you're about to pull up one of, to protect those rather anomalous green blades, look carefully at the dandelion its pungent yellow, its dramatic jagged leaves, and ask yourself, is this really what you want to do? The butterfly flits among the pine needles, reminding us, oh, human life, a summer creature's flight that all too soon must vanish into night. Here, a forlorn yearning, the autumn of the year, the autumn of our time. Life goes on, no time for love or mirth. The birds are still, leaves flutter, down to earth. And this is what he noticed on those walks through the woods, how gracefully the grass can bend, how the wild morning glory twines its tendril, or how beauty can be found in such common everyday weed as the plantain. And the wild rose, she does not ask, who am I? Nor would she dare intrude and troubles not about herself nor wonders if she's viewed. In 1948, Carl Rollins and Bruce Rogers cooked up this little book of arms, which displays the heraldic shields of Yale University and its colleges. And who but Fritz Cradle should have been asked to render those all not already on hand? So it seems, at least to the people at Yale, it seems eminently appropriate that the Cradle family, in its generosity, should have seen fit to have one extensive Fritz Cradle archive of books, woodblocks, original artwork, and correspondence find its permanent home in Yale's Arts of the Book collection, now under the curatorial protection of Jay Williams, who is here with us this week taking Michael Twyman's ephemera course. And two, it was remembering those shields in that little arms book that led me to Mr. Cradle in the early years of 1970 when New York's Episcopal Cathedral of St. John the Divine stood in need of a woodblock rendering of its heraldry. To this end, my wife, son John, and I visited the cradles in their Washington Heights apartment in New York City. And my most ineradicable memory of that day was to hear Mrs. Cradle pick up the ringing telephone with that most European of responses, Cradle! I remember, too, his studio workroom in that apartment, chock-a-block full of marionettes, wooden soldiers, and models of railway trains, one of which he kindly fetched down from atop a wardrobe to share his enthusiasm for transportation with John. Remember that sketchbook? Remember that sketchbook of the 15-year-old Fritz? It carried this drawing of the steam train of which he later built a model, the one he fetched down for our son to examine. But... Alas, the cathedral's arms, which we had gone there to set in motion, alas, Mr. Cradle did not live to finish. Now, in the Yale School of Art, graphic design program, which I teach, the faculty hold reviews of the students' work at the close of term. 
It was there one year because I was there one year because we were examining the work of a student who had held a fellowship in my printing office. And in keeping with our aim to produce well-rounded graphic designers, one faculty member was asking the student, what are your weaknesses? Well, I don't have the knack of, of doing interesting photographs. Then you should take the course next fall with Richard Benson. And where else are you weak? My typography is pretty unsure. Then you should take Alvin Eisenman's advanced typography in the spring. Suddenly, a chair creaked over in the corner where Herbert Matter, the accomplished Swiss photographer and poster designer, had been sitting old, frail, within six months of his life's clothes. But he had struggled up to a half-standing posture and waving an admonitory finger pronounced, I think, I think he should find his strengths and work on them. <laughs> and he slumped down. Well, Fritz Cradle never needed to have heard that advice from Herbert Matter. Early in life, he had found his strengths, and he worked on them. Indeed, they were his crowning achievements. Thank you.